Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace change makers. Gone are the days of checklist ethics and compliance programs where one simply goes down a list of program features and elements. Now, regulators, employees, customers, leaders are asking, are our ethics and compliance programs effective? Are they successful? Well, how do you know? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Director at LRN, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Derek Kloon, Product Manager of Data and Analytics at LRN. We are going to be talking about ethics and compliance benchmarking and how organizations can track their own trends over time as well as compare themselves to industry peers. We're going to talk about how all of this data comes together in technology environments like LRN's new Catalyst Reveal solution, which is launching soon. Derek is a real expert in this space. He's been working in the data and analytics vertical at LRN for a number of years and is a key architect behind our product innovation and incorporating the insights of our industry collaborators at major corporations around the world. Derek, thanks so much for joining me on the Principled Podcast. Absolutely, Emily. Pleasure to be here. So before we get in, maybe just some definitions and level setting. So what is benchmarking? The way that we think about it, it typically means comparing what you do as an organization to a number of comparable organizations or individuals. And usually this is done in a quantitative way. So a more kind of a numeric data-based way as opposed to a qualitative way. And benchmarking is helpful just for comparative purposes, and it can also help to identify best practices in the industry, and best practices referring to those behaviors, those practices, systems, which some sort of research shows that the very top firms use in a way, you know, maybe beyond or to a greater degree than other organizations. So why do organizations benchmark or want to benchmark? Derek, I know that you have a lot of conversations with our client partners around their benchmarking requests and their needs, but sort of as an overarching point, like why are companies interested in benchmarking? What's the value to them? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons why we see it in my conversations with our partners. Obviously, regulators are looking at ethics and compliance programs with much higher scrutiny than they ever have. And so organizations want better visibility into the wider space, whether that's how their ethics and compliance program measures against others within their industry, whether that's how it measures against others from an employee size or geographic footprint. So organizations use really two sets of benchmarks, internal company benchmarks, their own data and and organizational assessments, and benchmarking those quarterly, year over year to measure their own program. But also they want a broader audience to compare themselves to, to really see 
where they, for lack of a better term, rank within the pack, uh, so to speak. And so a lot of this we see is all around measuring ethics and compliance program effectiveness, right? How do I know my program's effective? I have the parts and the components, the codes of conduct, the policies, the disclosure certifications, but how do I know that those are effective? And we're seeing more and more that data is being used as a key component in that measurement of program effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reflecting on some conversations that I've had with our partners where they've said, our calls to our hotline are X percent. Is that good? Like when we look at our, we can collect data on ourselves and measure it. And certainly that's sort of where organizations have been heading for a while, you know, this increased use uh, data collection and analysis. But sometimes doing that in a vacuum, you're sort of left wondering, you know, okay, well, you know, the number is four. (laughs) Is that good? Should it be five? Should it be one? Should it be 20? What does this mean? And I think that's where that comparison is helpful because you used the term kind of broadening the pool or broadening the lens. I don't remember exactly what you said, but that, that idea of broadening your viewfinder and that's where I think this this drive for this desire for being able to benchmark and compare, you know, a large place of where it comes from. And just also as humans, like we, we like to compare ourselves to others in so many parts of our life. So there's maybe a, a human nature component to it, too. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth. None of these organizations, while they all are unique, operate in a vacuum. And so they need to have some sort of comparison just to know that they're below, above, or equal to a number, because we know the regulators don't tell, don't give specifics. So the next best thing that we have really is this this benchmarking tool of, in our case, all of the you know LRN partners, which you know over over two thousand partners in a number of different you know industries, Fortune five hundred, et cetera. Yeah, and so you know, Derek, I know that you partake in a lot of, you know, voice of the customer type conversations, and you are the recipient of a lot of requests for information from others within our organization. What are some of the top requests or data questions that you hear from our partners? You talked about wanting to measure program effectiveness. Like, how are people thinking about program effectiveness? What do they want to measure? What do they currently have versus what don't they have, but they want it? What are some of the general themes? At a high level, right, we know that all of these questions typically start with a risk assessment. Uh, A company will do a risk assessment from a, a third party to get at maybe their blind spots or to tell them some things that they already know. And so in most cases, that serves as the initial map, roadmap of different topics to consider around benchmarking around these data questions. And so once from there, we see organizations typically focused on the course data, right? That's the most popular one. We're rolling out mandatory training. How are my employees performing on that training? It has some sort of test in it. Are my employees performing better or worse than I expected or right on par with what the requirements are. 
And within that, there's a lot of different subcontexts. So is a particular business unit outperforming or underperforming based on the average or the median? Is there a regional confusion around a question? So I would say the initial focus that people immediately go to is the mandatory training that is being assigned and the course performance metrics, I'll say, how employees are performing within those courses. There are a lot of tertiary components that are critical to measuring, you know, program effectiveness. What we see also is, you know, culture being a critical component of ethics and compliance and larger initiatives at an organization, measuring that overall learner sentiment of the, you know, communications and the courses that are being rolled out to the learners. So not only are we looking at the performance aspect of those, but also the sentiment and learner feedback of what they think. All of those kind of surveys where you're getting additional feedback from employees is a is another great metric. Overall investment, right? Of course, senior leaders and, and maybe chief ethics and compliance officers, they want to see the return on investment in the ethics and compliance program. So what metrics can we look at to demonstrate that there is an ROI there? And then Another piece that we see is the communication strategy and how do we take those metrics to identify the best time to roll out a campaign, frequency of reminders, those types of things is another point at which we can look at and also improve upon year over year. Yeah, that's interesting. Do I actually don't know the answer to this. Do we do any type of A-B testing? I just... I'm kind of fascinated by, by that idea that you, you were just describing of what's the optimal time to roll out a training and the frequency of reminders. And I was actually just having a discussion with one of our colleagues about, is she the type of person that kind of takes her training right away as she is, or does she wait till the last minute, which I confess I am that type of person. So we were just talking about kind of different type of people and, and how their behavior informs or how their personality, their characteristics um, kind of inform their behavior with respect to to taking training. But anyway, so I'm just sort of thinking about like, okay, we have these two types of people and how can we optimize the attention and what's the right cadence of reminders to to get the laggards like me (laughs) for the right time of year. So with that, do we do any type of like, how do we know? Do we do any type of A-B testing or comparison? You know, we tried one reminder a week last time. Let's do two reminders a week. Like, how do we kind of know? Yeah. So at LRN, we currently have, if a partner is using the LRN platform, we do have kind of the overarching data of when they're sending reminders, when they're rolling out campaigns. We are just at the forefront with this new Catalyst Reveal dashboard of being able to look at that data and make prescriptive recommendations for uh, organizations. And so what I've seen is a lot of, there's really no one size fits all for any of these organizations and their communication strategies, right? You have some people who are rolling out uh, training and communications once a year, some on a quarterly basis, some biannually. And so we're just at the forefront of being able to look at that data, look at the time 
of a completion, how many people completed before a due date and after a due date. And you know, we're expecting sometime uh, mid next year to be able to make those prescriptive recommendations. And the exciting thing about this is the more people that we get onto this tool and using the tool, the more accurately we can prescribe different uh, methods. So potentially we could say for a specific industry, right, tech, we see that Friday afternoons are a better time. This is very normal in sales and kind of marketing strategies for emailing, right? When's the most optimal time to send an email and somebody will look at it? 11 a.m. on Tuesday is something the last time I checked. So we want to be able to do that. But also within each of those communications, what are the collateral that are the most effective video that a quick short video from the CEO that Emily is going to click on? Is it the email spoof to look like it's coming from the CEO that might get everyone's attention? So there's a lot of things that we're looking at currently. uh, And and we'll be doing that sort of A-B test, as you mentioned. Okay. Well, that's really fascinating. So it sounds like you and I should have another conversation in June and July of 2023. And you can tell us, you know, what you found with all of this. I love it. I think that's so interesting. And you're right that it's about building up that data pool. And it's only as good as as this as the size of the data pool, just like genetics testing. Um, <laughs> what percentage of me is, is Irish? So we talked a little bit about You've mentioned Catalyst Reveal, and you're talking about LRN's platform. So I kind of want to turn to that now, because this is a really exciting product launch for LRN, and we're launching a whole new platform in just a few weeks in mid-October that will dramatically increase the ability for our partners to benchmark against some of those metrics that you were talking about before. And I know that you've like you've played a lead role in designing what that looks like and, and the, the feature functions and, and how it works and making those choices. So one, can you tell us what Catalyst Reveal means? And then two, what will it enable our partners to do? Sure. Yeah. So Catalyst Reveal is, you know, the name that we've given to our new data and analytics platform. We want to reveal actionable data and insights to our stakeholders who are mostly, you know, ethics and compliance program administrators who are really in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of an ethics and compliance program and the data around that itself. Secondly, chief ethics and compliance officers. Thirdly, you know, a leadership uh, board of directors, et cetera. So the name reveal comes from the idea that we want to provide our partners with more actionable data so that they can get deeper insights into their employee populations, but also be able to use those insights through data to take action accordingly. So that's where the reveal comes from. Tool itself really is we've really revolutionized our data and analytics platform to allow for administrators to do a whole lot more than they than they ever could through uh, LRN. Number 1 is the organizational aspect of the data in benchmarking just the single organization's data. So I have all the LRN employees, I want to be able to compare and contrast sales with finance with marketing and see how those test scores are on a quarterly basis, year over year. That's something that's going to be within the tool. 
Additionally, as we're talking now, being able to benchmark those pieces of data to a larger LRN audience. So within a particular industry, how do we compare within an employee size of 5,000 to 10,000 organizations of that size? How do we compare with organizations with a revenue between 500 million and a billion dollars? And so going back to the beginning of our conversation, this allows our partners to internally benchmark and externally benchmark. So they they have the numbers and the data and they're not in a vacuum because they can quickly, with one click of a button, look at the benchmark and see how they compare. And the main aspects of our initial launch in October are going to be the course data. So the, the course performance metrics that I mentioned that we know organizations are keenly uh, attuned to, the company culture and measurements around that, and finally, the overall learner sentiment on the courses themselves. In the future, we'll continue to add, uh, but those are the three core dashboards and benchmarking capabilities that partners will be able to have come mid-October. Yeah, just a, a quick note on our the potential benchmark data pool, because I hopped over to our director of communications to get some insight into our partner base. And we're looking at over a thousand partners from around the world with a combined 28.3 million employees, including a big chunk of the Fortune 500. So that's sort of the potential universe of comparative data that we hope our partners will, will have access to. So that's really exciting. My eyes light up when I hear that amount of possibility with this tool, because it really is the more you put in, the more you get out, right? And so as the product manager of the tool, we'll be adding more capabilities such as the disclosures and certification management all around that. So you can see, and in the future, you can see the possibilities of okay, if we identify a risk through a disclosure or a certification, and we see that that employee or that region is scoring low on, say, the conflict of interest course, and they're they're not disclosing anything, we could hypothetically see a potential for, you know, a high risk environment. There's a lot of really exciting things. I know we have a bullet point to talk about what the future of this tool looks like, but it's going to be a game changer for uh, LRN and and I think for our partners as well. Absolutely. And thinking about the culture, the culture data, you know, the ability to kind of drill down into that one particular business unit or location that's scoring way below and kind of what is raising that red flag and going in and comparing that with some of the other data that you've mentioned our partners can collect on our platform and kind of triangulating those and rolling out some early intervention um, or refresher training or leadership coaching, whatever it might be. But yeah, being able to have those different kind of data sources, those data feeds pulled together into one place so that you can look at them you know, we, we've been talking about in vacuums. Um, you can look at them not in a vacuum is really exciting. I can't wait to see how our partners use it. Yeah, a single source of truth, right, to be able to start the triage process, whether that's for a risk, a high risk issue, or even if it's for triaging, okay, is this 
specific question in the specific course too difficult? Do we need to change the wording? Okay, we've changed the wording. Do we see an improvement in performance, right? So we want to create that tool to really track the entire kind of ethics and compliance life cycle and just make the administrators' lives a little bit easier with that single source of truth so that they have one place designed specifically for them with the appropriate metrics that we found, you know, from our thousand plus partners, you know, these are the metrics that are most important so that they can build world-class program. Yeah. So this is all really exciting. And I know that this is a kind of an area that you and I both have some personal passion around, but we would be remiss to not also acknowledge that there are limits to benchmarking and it's not a be-all end-all and we should be thoughtful to guard against uh, what's sometimes referred to as blind benchmarking. So I want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about where benchmarking isn't helpful or what it can't do or what we shouldn't use it for. I guess just to start, you mentioned earlier, one size doesn't fit all. And I think that that's We know that to be true. And also the regulators acknowledge that as well. So the Department of Justice, in their evaluation of corporate compliance programs, guidance document talk about how one size does not fit all with respect to ethics and compliance programs and that organizations need to consider the risks. So you talked about risk assessment as well. They need to consider their specific risks, their size, their their industry, their geographic footprint, their resources, et cetera when designing and implementing their ethics and compliance programs. So because all organizations are unique, you know, even within within a given industry, there are some limitations. To give a concrete example that one of our colleagues in the advisory practice, Susan Divers, shared with me, we conducted a program evaluation for two companies around the same time when we were looking at their program maturity and effectiveness. Both companies happen to be in the same tech manufacturing sector, and they even produced really similar products. So one might be forgiven for thinking that our evaluations and our recommendations would be structured the same. But despite these companies' similarities, they had really different risk profiles. So one company was a major exporter to the Chinese tech company Huawei, which was sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2019, whereas the other company had a different customer-based makeup. So comparing policies and procedures around trade control, for example, would not have been appropriate in this case. So that's one example of, again, kind of using that term blind benchmarking. We just have to be careful with what we're choosing to benchmark and recognize that not everything is benchmarkable or, or even if it is, should be benchmarked. I'm just curious, kind of your thoughts around the limits of, of benchmarking or where we want to take it with a grain of salt. Um, obviously, it has a lot of really positive uses that we've, that we've already talked about, but what are some of those that we need to just make sure we're kind of eyes wide open about? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, you know, you you really want to make sure you understand the benchmark itself. So if you're looking at industry, what that makeup really is, or employee size, right? Two employee sizes of of 10,000 employees, two organizations of 10,000 employees 
can be wildly different as, as we know. One could be in retail, one could be in manufacturing, and those have completely different risks. And so when you look at the numbers associated with the benchmark, like the, you know, the average test score for this harassment course in your industry is an 80% and you're at a 70%, the immediate response is, well, I'm, I'm below the benchmark. But those could be wildly different organizations. And so I think understanding the benchmark itself is certainly critical to when organizations are looking at this. And even when that benchmark is, you know, as you correctly pointed out, is correctly defined, each organization is still uh, very unique. And so I think it is a great data point to use to orient yourself and, and navigate from not the end-all be-all solution. Yeah. And I mean, really by default, the benchmark, if it's a complete data pool benchmark, meaning it's including all the possible data points, it is by definition an average. And the average isn't always, the average isn't always good, right? My beat at LRN, if you will, or one of my beats is culture. And I've worked with a number of organizations in helping them to understand and evaluate their ethical culture and and improve upon that ethical culture. And we typically do provide industry benchmarks related to that ethical culture data, which is helpful, but I've I've been in a number of conversations with chief ethics and compliance officers where they say we don't want to be average. We want to be better than average. So the benchmark is a helpful sort of orientation you know, of where we are, but it's not something necessarily to shoot for, you know, maybe we want to shoot higher because our standards, you know, what we expect uh, is higher. You know, just another little example, we recently, a few months ago, I guess it was, did this benchmarking effort related to codes of conduct where we evaluated, I think it was nearly 150 publicly available codes of conduct from the top listed companies in the US, UK, uh, France, and Germany. And what we found was that over 70% of the codes we assessed had a flesh Kincaid grade reading level. And that's meaning the typical sort of grade level that one would need to have in order to understand the content. Over 70% had a reading level above a 9.5, but that's actually kind of commonly accepted to be too high. What we typically want to shoot for is like an eight and a half to nine and a half. Um, And this is a sort of a standard range for not just codes of conduct, but for um, material on a company website, like any any sort of content that is being consumed by people. It's sort of a generally accepted appropriate reading level to be accessible to the majority of of your audience, whatever that audience might be. So anyway, in this case, you know, we have the vast majority of codes um, reading at a very high reading level. But again, that's not necessarily what companies should shoot for. Um, And in this case, we, we would argue that they should shoot for something lower. So I think those are just, I completely agree with you. One, just understanding what is the benchmark? Is it a valid benchmark that we're comparing ourselves to? And then you know, assuming that it is, how do we also just put that in context of our own organization, our own goals for ourselves, our internal comparisons year over year? You know, I think that's really important. And I, I've, you know, had the 
the privilege to work with a lot of companies for many, many years with respect to their ethical culture, where we do these, you know, recurring assessments. And so we're able to track progress over time. And, you know, I what I have observed over about 10 years of doing this is the industry benchmark tends to be important kind of the first time. But as companies do this the second time and the third time and the fourth time, you know, the industry benchmark I, I've even seen to, to sort of decrease in its relevance um, because at this point, the company is, is competing with itself. It's, well, how did we improve versus last year and the year before that and the year before that? And that's really, that's where they're setting targets. You know, we want to increase people's willingness to speak up by X points. How do we do that? As opposed to, well, here's the benchmark and how do we how do we shoot for it? So that's just been um, an interesting trend that I've observed, you know, in how the the benchmark is so helpful for setting that baseline, but it can be less useful. The external benchmark, the internal benchmark is always useful, but the external benchmark can become less, less relevant. I don't want to say useful, but less relevant or less informing our goals as we go on in making investments in certain areas. So yeah, right. The benchmark becomes a trend internally. And so you have trend analysis. And yeah, the, the tool that we're building is is really helping administrators identify those trends. You mentioned uh, context is key, and you're, you're so right there. And in talking with some of our account executives, they're very excited to get their hands on this data and share it with their, their partners so that they can make more informed, better informed decisions around, you know, our recommendations as, a, as an organization to, to our partners. We know that these ethics and compliance professionals are, are busy. They are juggling multiple jobs, if you will, at once. And so, you know, our goal is just to make their lives easier and to, again, prescribe best in class initiatives and actions that they can take. And so super excited to be able to take those benchmarks, take this data and within the context of the organization in a specific environment, be able to consult and, and add value. Yeah. So Derek, to close us out, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what's next. What is on the roadmap for Catalyst Reveal? We're launching in October. It has a lot of great features and functionality and the ability to reveal insights to our partners. What comes after that? What are we adding on? Yeah. So ending on a high note here, this gets me very excited. So I mentioned, right, reveal insights, provide actionable data. And I've touched on the prescriptive aspect of having the tool work for the professional. And so that's really where we're going to be focusing on in the next year and out into two, three years into the future. So what this looks like in practice is taking all of the data from the entire LRN product ecosystem, bringing it into this single source of truth so that we can, if you think of a spider web, can pull from different parts of the web, whether that's a high-risk disclosure or a, a knowledge check score or a unsigned policy or if we're bringing in hotline information from a partner, a hotline call, we want to be able to have this network of an ecosystem that we can pull from different places to, into a single source of truth to provide that data. And then taking the next step is to prescribe specific action of 
okay, this is what we've identified within the tool and the tool suggests that you should do this. And what a lot of the capabilities around that is around AI and ML, you know, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so some of the, f- the, the four key aspects that we're looking at in 2023 will be, you know, natural language processing and search. So you could, similar to Google, go into this tool and type a full sentence question and the tool can provide you with the answer, right? What's the average knowledge check score for my harassment course? And it's going to populate that answer for you instead of kind of the click through to get to that answer. To provide quick answers to the administrator or maybe even the senior leader or the chief ethics and compliance officer that's walking into a meeting, you know, with the board and needs to know that information quickly. So one aspect. Second aspect would be auto notifications around the data. So giving administrators the ability to kind of program the system so it works for them. Meaning if I know the average score for a course is 70% and someone's scoring 30%, I need to know that. I want to get an automatic notification that lets me know this business unit, this location, or this gift of this amount was given, I need to know that information. And so being able to have those automatic notifications and have the the tool work for you is another aspect. Two more that we're working on is around the the auto narratives. And so that the tool, again, prescribing, having the, the tool work for you and prescribing action. So based on the data, here are the high risk topics that we see in your organization. Based on this benchmark here within this industry are the trainings that most people are rolling out. So having auto narratives around the data that change based on your filters or the data that's coming in. And then the last piece is going to be on a forecasting. And what forecasting will allow us to do is to do some predictive analytics in terms of where we want the program to be in the future. And so we could see, if we touch back on the um, campaign data, we can see that, okay, out of the 10 reminders, we've rolled out five, you're at 30% of getting 100% completion. Here's the forecast. Here's the trajectory that we expect you to get by your 10 reminders. And so being able to forecast different components of the ethics and compliance program All of these aspects or all of these capabilities go back to those really two points that I've hearkened on, the providing the actionable data, having the tool work for you, and then the prescriptive part of what should you do. We've identified this. Now, what do we suggest that you do? And so those are all key initiatives that we have for 2023 with the overarching idea of making this tool as self-service as possible. We want admins to be able to go in here and do all this on their own. Obviously, they can rely on LRN if they need to, but we want to give them, you know, the power to be able to do everything. Wow, Derek, I am just I'm struck by how valuable these types of insights are going to be for our partners and, you know, ultimately their organizations, right? Like it's 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 what is this in service of? You know, this is in service of helping employees around the world 
know what the right thing to do is in any given situation and and know how to behave in alignment with their company's values and their code and you know inspire principal performance that's so exciting to hear about the future and 2023 is not that far away <laughs> sadly this year has flown by but wow i can't wait to to hear more Thank you so much, Derek, for coming on and sharing your insight with us and sharing about these exciting updates for our company and for all the companies that we have the honor of working with. I look forward to coming back and speaking with you in, what is it, about eight months or so, so we can hear the answers to some of these questions that we asked. Yeah, thank you so much, Derek. Yeah, likewise. I look forward to it, Emily. All right. Well, my name is Emily Miner, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to The Principal Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review. 